Lessons on Leaving. What's so bad about growing up in a cult? A few years ago, someone commented on one of my social media posts asking me to explain why I felt that growing up in a cult was such a bad thing. It was such a diminishing question that I felt my brain completely freeze up. The question mirrored much of the gaslighting that the Unification Church and other high-demand groups and cults inflict upon their membership, telling them that things aren't that bad or that they should be grateful for their suffering. Other cults employ similar gaslighting techniques, such as the following that was shared by the Let's Talk Cults Instagram account. She says, things people say to me when I talk about what happened to me in the cult. It was so long ago, get over it. That never happened. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Everyone has a dysfunctional family. It wasn't that bad. Well, you could have left at any time. You should have told someone back then. Well, I didn't experience that. My favorite, maybe you were the one with the problem. Essentially, many of these phrases mean the same thing as what was so bad about growing up in a cult. And trauma survivors across the spectrum have probably heard variations on the phrase. So when confronted by a stranger on the internet with that question, the only response I could give in my triggered state was, I suggest you educate yourself on cultic abuses before asking a question like that. Nice, right? Now that several years have passed, I'm a little calmer, I want to take the time to answer the question more fully. And to be clear, I don't think that it should be the survivor's job to take on the emotional labor of educating the public about childhood trauma in cults. But this is an area that I've been diving into a lot lately in terms of research, and so I wanted to write a post that other survivors could direct the curious public to in case faced with similarly impertinent questions. Let's start by saying that to ask any survivor of a cult, whether first generation, second generation, or multi-generational, what was so bad about their experience is akin to asking a domestic abuse survivor what was so bad about their relationship. I've covered this in a previous post. Coercive control manifests similarly in cultic environments, traffic environments, and in intimate partner violence. So if the thought of asking a battered woman what was so bad about her relationship makes you recoil, just know that the question resonates similarly to survivors of other coercive environments. So first we're gonna talk about terror tactics used in cultic systems. According to Alexandra Stein, author of Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, Attachment in Cults and Totalitarian Systems, the grooming process to lure someone into a cultic group is also very similar to the grooming process seen with domestic violence. The victim may be subjected to, quote, love bombing, something that was coined by the Unification Church, by the way, and it's a process of inundating a person with adoration and attention which can trick them into thinking that they've found a safe space. But then the switch occurs, where the abuser begins to isolate the victim from their friends and family, and a person is then engulfed in a new abusive system. Now, when someone's born into this abusive system, they are born within that isolation, so I just want to underscore the terror of that. According to Stein, that isolation within the abusive system pays the way for, quote, terror tactics to be utilized. This can range from the abuser threatening the victim, teaching them to fear the outside world, instilling the fear of an apocalyptic event, or causing the victim to walk on eggshells in fear of being criticized by the leader or the group. Stein says, quote, I believe attachment theory provides a good theoretical approach for understanding brainwashing, and it holds that people run to a safe haven when they're afraid. If the group has been successful, the recruit, now having had fear instilled by the group, 
runs to the only safe haven available, the group itself. So with children in the cultic system, I believe there's another layer of this. Oftentimes parents are in the position of abuser or they allow for others within the cult to abuse the children. In my case, other adults and even second generation members acted as abusers when my parents weren't present. In fact, sometimes my parents sent me into those situations. And when I told them about those, the abuses happening, they explained it away. You know, it was providential and things like that. So when children have been programmed with terror tactics from a young age, it means that they are that much more likely to run to the quote safe haven of the abusive parents slash members and the whole cultic system. So let's talk about the effects of terror. According to Stein, there are two major effects of running to the group for safety. The first is that it creates a trauma bond with the abusive parents and or group. Stein classifies this as a disorganized attachment bond and emphasizes that it is a difficult bond to break when a person is isolated from alternative havens of safety. So this is something that underscores many of the points that I made in a previous post, why didn't you just leave? Another important point that Stein makes is that isolation doesn't necessarily have to be physical. In a cult that doesn't keep its members on a secluded compound, it can still be considered isolationist because they're secluding their members on an emotional and cognitive level. This is usually achieved by controlling personal relationships between cult members, as well as limiting access to family members outside of the group and by controlling information about the group. So for example, growing up, I was taught that my family members who were not in the Unification Church were evil because they had heard divine principle and then rejected it. Also, if I read material that criticized the church, I was told I would be possessed by evil spirit world or satanic spirit world. Lovely, right? <laughs> Speaking of terror tactics. So Stein states that the second effect of running to the source of fear for safety is dissociation because this technique doesn't provide an actual escape from the threat. It instead causes a person to go into a kind of, quote, freeze mode. According to Stein, quote, this explains why perfectly intelligent people can find themselves unable to rationally view a cult they are involved with. It is literally too frightening and disorganizing to do so. The lack of alternative information and true havens undermines a follower's cognitive processes on matters regarding the group. The cult can now do the thinking for them, the essence of brainwashing. Now again, most of Stein's work focuses on the cult recruit, and unfortunately there's a dearth of information on the developmental consequences of being born or raised in this kind of terrorizing system. I discussed in a previous post, Healing Through Art Part 2, the research, that Lena Fanari, um, a licensed social worker, wrote a paper which outlines a number of issues that children raised in cults can suffer from. They include, but are not limited to, lack of adequate medical care, isolation, physical abuse, physical neglect, sexual abuse, educational neglect. These, however, are developmental considerations. They don't cover the ongoing issues that cult life can have on second and multi-generational adults after they leave. However, Cindy H. Matthews published a study, Second Generation Religious Cult Survivors Implications for Counselors in the International Journal of Cultic Studies. In it, she found that while first and second generation cult survivors both experienced psychological challenges in leaving a cult and reintegrating into society, second generation adult cult survivors, that is a mouthful, face additional challenges. So similar to Fenari's paper, Fernari, God, I hope I pronounced her name right, Fernari's paper, some of these challenges include 
the life, the effects of lifetime abuse and neglect, attachment disorders, a lack of education, but Matthew also goes further to explore family relationship challenges and a lack of external world support. The following is excerpt from her study and the full text of it can be found in the show notes. So here are some of the challenges that childhood cult survivors face. In her study, Matthews identifies 12 themes in participants' experiences of growing up in a cult, deciding to leave, the process of leaving, and then living outside of the cult. The first is patriarchy and gender roles. So many participants describe the subjugation of women and domination by men in their religious cults. In the Unification Church, we referred to man as subject and woman as object. This was even illustrated in the four-position foundation in the theological text, The Divine Principle. (sighs) Lovely, lovely. According to Matthew's study after leaving, almost all participants experienced marriage or relationship difficulties in terms of superior-slash-subordinate relationships. They found they needed to redefine their roles in a marriage and most considered the possibility of ending marriages that were created in the cult. She further states that these and other subjugation and manipulation techniques may contribute to former members' feeling of low self-esteem, powerlessness, and worthlessness. That is like the understatement of the century. So number two, obedience to authority. Throughout their time in the cult, participants were forced to unquestionably submit to authority. Unquestioningly, not unquestionably, but I suppose that that is interchangeable. Those who did question authority were subjected to humiliation, shaming, and possible abuse, such as being yelled at, shamed in public or private, called out from the pulpit, pulpit, and even spanked in public. And side note, I was just listening to another episode of the Falling Out podcast with Akina Cox, and uh, she and Elgin were talking about some of the abuse that happened to children at Camp Sunrise, like counselors forcing them to roll around on the blacktop after they had uh, scattered rocks all over it as part of a punishment. So there were a number of these punishments that, like, if one person questioned, then the group got punished too, so just to illustrate that in a nice way. When leaving a cultic group, that training can stick with a second generation adult, making it difficult for them to stand up to authority figures or question them. Like, why would you question if you had been beaten every time you were questioning somebody growing up, right? Number three, decision-making. Similar to the demand of obedience to authority, all participants in the study discuss how decisions were made by the cult leaders, or in some cases, fathers in the community. Many participants mentioned that physical, emotional, or psychological abuse follow if decisions made by the leader were not followed. Upon leaving their respective groups, survivors discuss having difficulties with polarized thinking, magical thinking, and trying to find the one right answer to a problem or question. This can make it difficult to function independently and make decisions on their own once leaving the cult. Number four, group and relationship support. So when a first-generation member leaves a cult, they have the option to reunite with old friends and family. There's a, quote, pre-cult identity to return to. But according to Matthews, and as I have personally found, second-generation survivors do not have those options. They're dealing with a complete loss of friends, family, and identity. They also often struggle with building new relationships and friendships in an outside world where they felt judged and weird. I'm also going to insert we were taught to fear the outside world. We called it the outside world or the fallen world or the satanic world. And so it's really difficult to turn off that fear switch. Because most most cult survivors have not experienced healthy relationships, they also tend to either not trust at all or 
trust too much in relationships, which, which can lead to additional negative experiences. That's another complete understatement, in my opinion. Number five, relationships with parents. So in most cases, parents have full authority over their children in a cultic environment. Participants in the study discussed that fra uh, fathers used anger and punishment to control and mothers used guilt and shame to control their children. It's like she looked at my family <laughs> when doing this study. Overall, parents put child children's needs second to the cult. Upon leaving, for children who continued to communicate with their parents, conversations were generally guarded because the cult continued to come up in conversation and the participant would be invited back to the church. So in many of the stories that I've heard uh, coming out of the Unification Church, children's needs were often categorized as selfish or satanic, um, in my case sometimes self-righteous, leading parents to neglect their children and teaching them that it wasn't safe to express their needs. So also when I left, my mother asked me to come to forgiveness ceremonies where for a large sum of money, I could be reinstated into somewhat good standing in the church. She would also tell me that all of my struggles in assimilating to the outside world were because I had left and that I, quote, needed God in my life. Not that I'd, you know, grown up with no survival skills whatsoever. Number six, religiosity and spirituality. So study participants note that to be spiritual meant to be religious and obey all cult rules and regulations. The cult, after all, was posited as the only path into heaven or to achieve enlightenment. Yet sometimes participants observed that the behavior of the leader was not in tandem with the doctrine or that the doctrine itself didn't make any sense to them. I'm feeling called out again. Matthews notes that today, most participants consider religiosity and spirituality as completely different entities, with spirituality meaning connection with a higher power or nature, and religiosity meaning dedication to a specific religious denomination. She said that most participants considered themselves to be spiritual, but express a lack of trust towards any church organization. Surprise, surprise, right? Number seven, abuse. According to Matthews, all, dis all participants discussed psychological slash emotional, physical, spiritual, and sexual abuse that they suffered in their respective cults. And she also states that all forms of the abuse in a cult could roll up to spiritual abuse because it was done in the name of a higher power or religious organization. Physical abuse took the form of hitting, spanking, isolation, and food and sleep deprivation. I just thought those were ways that we became more spiritual in the cult. It took me, it is still taking me time to like reprogram myself and be like, oh no, those are abuse and control tactics. Emotional abuse was the most common form of abuse reported, such as calling people out, public or private rebuke, public humiliation, intimidation, and threats. She also notes that some participants even talk about how they were manipulated into and participated in the abuse of disobedient or defiant members. I feel like that is something that almost every single second generation who has escaped the Unification Church and I relate to um, because we were all put into the positions of being, quote, older sisters or older brothers. And so we were part of the structure that upheld that kind of abuse and manipulation. Participants discussed the guilt and shame they experienced because of the abuse and how they left because they could not tolerate inflicting abuse upon each other. So also in the Unification Church, we were expected to report on others' behavior and to either shame someone into better behavior or essentially shun them. So there was a lot of language around that, like if somebody was, you know, uh, being negative about something and usually it was like calling out bullshit, we would tell them like they were caning out or they were developing a foundation for Satan to 
invade and things like that. Um, so there's just like a lot of different ways that you can control someone's behavior through language and shame and groupthink. Upon leaving, almost all participants also experienced shunning and threats from their families and other cult members. Number eight, outside influences. Because these former cult members were separated from the outside world within the cult, they saw outside influences such as work, school, and counseling as evil and to be avoided. I can definitely relate to that. Like my mother told me that all therapists were evil. So when they left their respective groups, almost all participants report that they felt behind in education, finances, and employment, raising my hand here. No matter how much success I achieve, I still feel behind. Because all of their time had been spent working in the cult, they had not had the opportunity to advance their own skills and abilities. Many also report that they didn't know how to spend their free time. Another one that I'm raising my hand for because we were taught to be productive all of the time in the group. And I feel like this intersects perfectly with like capitalistic hustle culture um, that like being idle is so, so difficult. And so, so many of us have a lot of anxiety around free time. So there's four final themes, and in my opinion, I think that they are the most important, uh, and Matthew states that they're also interwoven into the prior eight themes. So number nine is the sense of identity. While in the cult, members were taught how to be an act. Most participants report that they had two identities, one that was constructed in the cult and one secret self that was not known to the cult. My mother even told me that as a second generation of the Unification Church, we called ourselves blessed children. Uh, I had a secret identity, so that just underscores that. Participants felt torn between their two identities. Once they left, many participants report feeling lost, confused, different, behind, and even somewhat childlike or naive in relationships to in relationship to others around them. Participants also report that discovering their true personality was difficult but rewarding. And so Renee and I were having this conversation the other day on um, the Instagram Live where we were dissecting uh, information control in Steve Hassan's bite model. And one of the things that she pointed out was that uh, it's terrifying to discover your true self. And I made the comment that we were taught to almost demonize the true self, right? Because that was connected to our intuition that was telling us that something was wrong. And yet to question is to create that foundation for Satan to invade, right? And so not only is it difficult, but it can be terrifying to try to discover your true self, your true personality. Number 10, emotional consequences of life in the cult. While they were in the cult, participants report feeling judged by others, guilty about their decisions and thoughts, and angry as a result of manipulation, abuse, and control. <laughs> Some individuals left because of their anger towards parents or leaders or both. Yeah, I was so angry. And of course, that was something that was used against me too, right? Because anger was considered like something of Satan. And so my anger was like completely... Uh, diminished as satanic as opposed to like maybe you were hurt and you have like valid things to be angry about. They all experienced a wide variety of strong emotions, especially guilt and anger while they were leaving. After leaving, participants report that they continue to deal with anger, guilt, shame, and depression. To compound the difficulties after leaving, second-generation survivors have difficulties learning to trust and interact with, quote, outside people after having been taught to distrust them their whole lives, and that's something that I mentioned earlier. So fear and courage is number 11. Cult leaders manipulated and controlled the group members by inducing fear in them through threats, shunning, humiliation, and abuse. 
These feelings of fear led to dread, hopelessness, and helplessness that continued to reappear for participants during and after leaving. In spite of all of their fear, all participants found the courage to leave. And that's something that like, I just want to offer to listeners who may have escaped cultic environments too. Like that's so important. You know, we continue to feel fear on a daily basis and hopefully it's diminishing over time, but you are so strong and you are so courageous in making the choices that you made. And number 12, the final piece in this study is the long process of change. For all participants, leaving took a lot of thought and reflection. All participants mentioned that they felt forever affected and damaged because of their cult experiences. Um, previous studies have also found that the effects of living in a cult last long beyond when one leaves. So participants in this study simply reiterate that change and healing are a lifetime process. So now I want to share with you um, some of the words of second generation Unification Church survivors, because I asked them to share their response to the question, what was so bad about growing up in a cult? And I'm just going to repeat what some of them had to say. Toxic altruism. You're not taught to think independently. Secret identities and double lives. You grow up never trusting yourself. And then when you leave, you don't trust anyone else either. Definitely a lot of shame and guilt. Feeling incapable of expressing oneself or connecting with others. The biggest challenge has been trusting my ability to make sound decisions. It taught me to hate myself because I couldn't be the virgin, ver, couldn't be the virgin, couldn't be the version of myself they wanted. You turn into a program in that it robs you of your humanity and you turn into the walking dead. It doesn't allow people to be different, express themselves honestly and openly as unique individuals with unique experiences and ideas. Cults instill the idea that if you don't follow their teachings that are the one and only chosen way to live, there are consequences of pain, shame, eternal torture, and they make people rely on the organization to feel a sense of value and purpose, which is why it is hard to leave. I lived in fear of myself that my own needs would be against the church. I lived in heightened fear of negative emotions, experiences, ideas, and people that didn't understand the cult's vision. There was pressure to conform, follow, and support and live to a standard. For those and for myself that were different in a variety of ways, it created a sense of self-hate, self-abandonment, disgust, confusion, frustration, and anger leading to self-destructive behaviors because I couldn't bridge the gap between the expectations and who I was. So as you can see, many of the responses that I received fit into the themes covered in the study done by Matthews. But I think the ones that stuck out to me the most were the ones that talked about self-hatred. Like that resonated so deeply with me along with the lack of self-trust because those are the things that I find the most tragic. When you're taught not to trust or love yourself, it allows space for any kind of abuser to step in and define your worth for you. So I'm of the opinion that these things make the childhood cult survivor that much more susceptible to future abuses when they leave the group. There are instances of, of cult hopping, of getting caught up in 
uh, toxic workplaces. That's something that I definitely experienced. And I've experienced toxic friendships and toxic relationships because I didn't have the skills and the boundaries to protect myself. But I want to end this on hope for the future. So even with all the difficulties stated before, I think that there is hope for us that grew up in cults. According to Leona Finari and Roseanne Henry, in their ICSA, so International Cultic Study Association Today article uh, called Lessons Learned from Second Generation Adults About Recovery and Resilience, they say, as yet, resiliency research specifically for second generation cult survivors has not been carried out. Resiliency research that has been done with children who face many risk factors similar to the factors children in cult groups may face shows hopeful results. This resiliency research indicates that 70 to 75% of children who have experienced significant risk factors are able to survive and create positive lives for themselves. In addition, recent research on the plasticity of the human brain and its ability to generate new cells and neural networks with new learning and new experiences provides much hopefulness for the capacity to overcome developmental trauma. Now I want to ask, what does resiliency look like to you? According to Finari and Henry, most of us who were raised in high demand groups do not see ourselves as resilient. I am raising my hand again. And yet the participants in their workshops had jobs, many were married, some were raising children, and a few were in school. Still, because of how they were raised, many participants do not seem to recognize just how powerful they were. After all, that power was demonstrated in their ability to survive, walk away from everything they'd ever known, and create a new life. Still, many participants understated both their survival and success. Again, raising my hand. So perhaps you too are prone to diminishing your success and your resiliency. Now in their workshop, Finari and Henry asked participants to define their own resiliency on a continuum from vulnerability, so less resiliency, to adaptability, which is more resilient, with a discussion of what impacts the uh, one's ability to be resilient. And participants came up with four categories of overlapping strengths that they used to define resiliency. First is social competence, second is problem solving, Third is autonomy, and fourth is a sense of purpose. And in their article, there is a table of the strengths that participants use to define their resilience. Now, I'm just going to read out some of them. So some resilience barriers are isolation, limited support from friends and family, prolonged dependence on fellow members. But the resiliency enhancers could be connecting with former members, having extended family support and peer support, having the ability to make new friends, in problem solving, a resilience barrier might be poor education, but a resilience enhancer is getting an education, whether formal or informal. So a problem solving barrier to resiliency is misunderstanding cults, but an enhancer is getting a cult education, researching your group or leader. Another problem solving cluster resilience barrier is apocalyptic thinking. We always said that we were in the last days, right? And even like 
before I was born, Reverend Moon would talk about there being this third world war. After I left the group, I never considered the group to be an apocalyptic group. And now as I research, I'm like, oh, we were apocalyptic. We just didn't use the phrase apocalypse. But we were very focused on like this end of the world. Um, so yeah, crazy stuff. So if we pop down to the autonomy cluster, a resilience barrier is financial instability. Isn't that for like even people who weren't born in cults? But a resiliency enhancer is having access to financial resources. Uh, an autonomy cluster resilience barrier is passivity and helplessness. But you move into the resilience area when you practice self-advocacy, willfulness. I love that. Like willfulness is a good thing, guys. Standing up to the leader. Um, poor health is a, a resilience barrier, but having good health and access to healthcare is a resilience enhancer. Like these, <laughs> when we get into this, this is like all of society, isn't it, right? So I'm going to jump down to the sense of purpose cluster. So a resilience barrier is focusing on militarism or rigidity, but a resilience enhancer is choosing elasticity and humor. I love that humor. I'm, I'm working on that one. A barrier is underestimating your ability to survive. An enhancer is trusting your ability to survive the cult trauma, hold your ground, bend, and stay alive. So guys, the fact that you are still alive and out and, and like trusting in the person that you were and still are that like survived that, that got you out, that's amazing, right? You are fucking amazing. And so... That just like owning that is a resilience enhancer. And I just, I love that so much. And so another one is showing impatience and bitterness is a resilience barrier. And that's definitely one that I'm working on. Um, and an enhancer is having patience and compassion for self and others. I feel like a lot of the, the ex second gen that I know have a lot of compassion and patience for others, but not so much for self. So I hope that the review of these qualities can help you see yourself in a new light as stronger, more capable, and much more resilient than you ever thought. As always, I want to end with, if you've been in any high control group or religion, you can share your story with the hashtag I got out. You can share on your own platform, or if you need to be anonymous or would like support, there are resources at the I got out website. When you see a survivor share their story, let them know they've been heard. This is such a meaningful part of the movement. We all need to know we're not alone. If you know somebody who's been harmed by a high demand group, you can share the I Got Out posts that you think would help them. Together, we can bring awareness to how many of us have been harmed by high control organizations and end the shame or stigma we might feel about our experiences. You can tell your story, you can impact lives, and you can change the world.